Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast, and we're continuing our series in questions. God, faith, life, and the challenge of being human. Today, a question you sent in is, what do we do with heaven and hell? So as we begin this conversation, I want you to answer this question. What do you think of when you think of heaven and when you think of hell? Enjoy. If we're going to talk about heaven and hell, we probably have to talk about what's behind the curtain. And if we're going to talk about what's behind the curtain, then we need to ask some better questions. If we're going to ask some better questions, then we're going to find out, is this really a gospel of entrance or a gospel of participation? And if we ask questions like that, then we'll definitely reverse a few arrows. And if we can reverse a few arrows, then we definitely have to talk about that time we were at camp. If we can talk about that time we were at camp, then we can definitely talk about the real hells and the real heaven that's going on every day. And then if we can talk about all of that, then we have to keep cycling this thing through because to be human is not static. It's a journey that keeps looping and moving around. So let's just do that. What's behind the curtain? A lot of times when people want to talk about heaven and hell, they're thinking about a bunch of different things. First, what you need to realize is that the Bible is this complex book, right? 66 books written over 1,500 years, and it has a lot of things to say about heaven and hell, but how it evolves. Because everything in the Bible is an evolution of a thought or an idea. A lot of times when we think of the Bible, we think about it as static, as if it was all written at once. Jesus typed it up on Microsoft Word, gave it to a stork, and it was delivered by Santa Claus on Christmas morning. But that is not how the Bible came here, right? The Bible is much more complex than that. So even though the Bible evolves on its thinking about heaven and hell, you also have to know this, the Bible rarely talks about heaven and hell. So when people say to you, Bible, basic instructions before leaving earth, they have no idea what they're talking about because that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is not that interested in what happens afterwards. It's extremely interested in what's going on now. But we're having a conversation about heaven and hell, so let's think about a few of those things. One of the things that you have to have in your mind is that the ancients had a view of the world, which we still hold on to today, but we don't actually believe. Their ancient view of the world was there is an earth, it is flat, it is held up by pillars. Sometimes it was on the back of a turtle, as the earth often does. And on top of the pillars, there is this sky that has little holes through it. And that's where the angels and gods and demigods and Zeus and whoever you want peeks through to make sure that everything is going on okay. Even in Genesis, interestingly enough, it's not a scientific recount of what happened at the Big Bang. There's a view of there's a firmament that is holding up the skies, which are giant pillars. No. We went into space, there were no pillars found, interestingly enough. Then there's the view that there is earth, that there is heaven, and then there is this thing below the earth, and if you listen really carefully, there are people screaming in torment right now, right? That's the ancient view of things. We still hold on to that, even though most of us don't really believe any of that. So we just need to call out the cognitive dissonance that's happening within our own minds and within our own hearts when we think of something like heaven and hell. Another thing that you need to think of when you think of heaven and hell is how human beings operate. We operate because of mythology. 
Now, when I say mythology generally to a Christian audience, it's like, no, 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 you never mentioned the Bible in the same word mythology because that might uh, mean that somehow it's not true. It might mean somehow it's not literal, but that doesn't mean that it's not true or that we don't take this thing seriously. And so literally what happens sometimes when we talk about the Bible is that we talk about heaven and hell and earth in a way that doesn't actually work for our lives, but we still want to take seriously the concepts that are going on. So when we think of myth, we have to realize that one of the things that has held human beings together is our ability to tell myths, our ability to tell stories. Yuval Hereris, the writer of Sapiens, this Israeli anthropologist talks about that when Neanderthals and Homo sapiens are fighting to who's gonna be the dominant humanoid, you know, as we do on planet Earth, Homo sapiens made it because of our ability to have imagination and to tell stories. Because we could do that, unlike any other animal that was out there, so to speak, right? We had the ability to capture the minds of hundreds, if not thousands of people, and we developed things like armies. And so our understanding of the gods, our understanding of economics, our understanding of all things happened because we have this incredible ability to tell stories. And yet I'm a firm believer that everything that we see in scripture, that the truth of who God is still fits in with these realities that are going on out there. So we have to understand that we don't see the world the same way that the ancients believed and saw the world. That there's a level of myth involved in this and that myth is serious and true even if we don't take it literally anymore. And then we need to talk about a few words. Four words for hell that we should talk about. First is the one in Hebrew, it's Sheol. Sheol is a place of waiting. It's where the dead go. When you're dead, you're done, that's it. You lived life, I hope it was good, but now it's kind of quiet, you have a big sleep. That's pretty much every time you see the word hell or Hades or the pit or death, it's the word Sheol in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Three words for hell in the New Testament. The first one is Gehenna, used 12 times. Gehenna is a word that is very much associated with a place in Jerusalem that was outside of the city where people burned trash. It was a physical place that smelled of sulfur because they're burning trash and was very hot because they were burning trash and it was outside of the city. The other thing that you need to know about that, because if you were listening to Jesus talk about Gehenna, you would have been a good Jew, which means you understood your Hebrew Bible really well. You would immediately think of, ah, Gehenna. He's talking about Leviticus 16, am I right? Because in Leviticus 16, we're talking about atonement. And what happens on the Day of Atonement is that we get two goats together. One of them is, a goat, is a, a, the goat of Azazel, everybody's favorite goat. And then we put all of the sins on goat of Azazel and we send Azazel out into the edges of the community into the wilderness where the goat will die. So Gehenna, the goat, where did we get this devil thing from? Weird, right? All of these things are as far from Jerusalem as possible because in Jerusalem is what? the temple and what's inside the temple, the Holy of Holies. And where does Yahweh dwell? On top of the temple in the Holy of Holies, right? Far away from the wilderness in Gehenna where demons and the devil and evil things dwell. That's their cosmology and their framework for the world. The closer you get to the Holy of Holies, the closer you're getting to heaven. The farther away you get from the Holy of Holies, as you go out to the garbage dumps and where Azazel is roaming, you get to hell. It doesn't mean that we're not saying there's heaven or hell. It's saying that the ancient perspective of it, 
the geographical cosmology that's taking place is very different than how you've read or understood heaven and hell in 2017 in a place like Los Angeles. Another word for hell in the New Testament is Tartarus. Tartarus is only used one time in 1 Peter, and it's this idea of Hades and hell, and it's the passage where Jesus, after he dies, descends into Hades and somehow deals with the dead. Enjoy that one for your future Bible study tonight. And what's going on there is that that one word that is used one time is a word that is used by the Greeks to tell their mythological story about Zeus, when Zeus tied down the Titans, and he tied them in Tartarus so that they would no longer be able to wreak havoc upon the world. Because the thing that you need to understand about the Bible, what it's doing all of the time, is it's telling a counter-narrative to the other narratives that are going on in the world. So when you have a narrative that the gods are angry and that the gods are always at war, oftentimes the language, the words, and the mythology of other cultures, cultures are taken by the scriptures and they're reused to understand God and what Jesus is doing. Why? Because those were already the frames and the cosmology and the understanding that the people of the time had. So what better opportunity than to take their narratives and to say, this God's more interesting than that. This God operates in different ways than that. And in this story, our understanding of heaven and hell is not about who's going up, but more importantly, why does God keep coming down? The final word in the New Testament for hell is Hades. Hades is pretty much referred to any time, particularly in the book of Revelation or in the book of Matthew, when Satan or demons or any of the bad juju stuff out there that you can't see is being dealt with in the world. And so all of these words have a very specific reference point to the ancient world, not generally the same reference point that I was told as a kid at my aunt's church because they were the only 200 people that were going to heaven. That's pretty nice for them, I think. Because um, I was pretty terrified, right? The nuances of these stories weren't there. But here's the reality for us. We are consumed with what's happening behind the curtain at times. <coughs> what about heaven and hell? What happens when I die? How do I understand justice? How do I understand right, the fact that there are bad things that go on and I kind of want God to kick some butt at some point? I really want God to judge everybody else, to be rather gracious to myself, of course, but all of those other people who have pissed me off in my lifetime, I want them to get some eternal spankings. And those stories are in the Bible for a reason, because the Bible was written by a minority people group who was abused and beaten down and oppressed by every major superpower the world ever saw. So why do they talk about Hades? Because they want justice behind the curtain. Because on this side of the veil, things aren't working out well for them. So they want to know that over there, Jesus has Caesar over his knee and he's spanking hard, right? I don't think I, that was in my notes, but that just happened. <laughs> what an image, and I'll deal with that Freudian slip later. All right, I don't know what all that means. Good times, welcome to my mind, it's a sick place. Okay. The other thing that we need to realize is that the Bible is constantly trying to say this. We as human beings want to know what's going behind the curtain, but God is trying to constantly remove the curtain. There's nothing back there, God's saying. Everything that I'm doing, I'm trying to bring it to you. I'm trying to bring it your way. So even at the death of Jesus, 
The temple curtain is literally torn in two because God's trying to say, you keep trying to put me in this very designated place and then you keep trying to tell everyone else that hell is somewhere over here. That is based on a story of control and power about who's telling where God is and where God's not. And so I'm gonna say the curtain's gonna be torn in two so that you realize it was never about what you thought may have been going on behind here. You have all kinds of views because you're human beings and so you have all kinds of perspectives of what's going on. But the big chunk, the big arrows, the giant movement of the Bible is God is coming towards us. And that's how we're gonna talk about heaven and hell today. So we need to ask some better questions. When we think of heaven and hell, what we really need to think of is, what does that say about God? My version of heaven and hell, whatever that is, whether it's similar to someone sitting around me or whether it's nuanced or where it's very, very different than the ancients' perspective and their cosmology of the world, what does that story say about God is incredibly important to ask ourselves. And so I wanna start with a verse of how Jesus entered his ministry and we're gonna think about heaven and hell through the lens of what Jesus was actually doing. Look at Matthew 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. First, if we're gonna talk about this idea of repent, then I wanna talk about a gospel of entrance. And after we spend a little time talking about a gospel of entrance, I wanna talk about a gospel of participation. If that's, yeah, I think that's how you spell it, wonderful. And then we're gonna talk about the implications of what come with both. So first, a gospel of entrance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The word repent goes like this, confess, all of the bad things that you have done, particularly the moral things that you shouldn't have done, and definitely the things that you should have done more of, there's a lot of ought language here, and it really revolves around the fact about how bad you are, and you need to make sure that you say all of these things to God, and that you say these things in a very particular way, so that one day you will experience this kingdom of heaven, which has nothing to do with what's going on here, and has everything to do with an elevator that when you get past the bouncer one day, you will be welcomed into their sort of gospel. Anyone been there? before? Well, repenting is about what you're confessing, and it's all about an opportunity to do something in the near distant future. And this story of God goes like this. God was angry for most of time because of a talking snake and some people in a garden. Then what happens is God really, really loves you, I promise. Wink, wink. But if you don't say the prayer the right way, then again, for the most of history, God's gonna be really angry at you again. Anyone grow up with that gospel? Or a version of it? So then what would happen in my mind or the people that I would talk to is, what does this say about God when I have this gospel of entrance? What it generally said about God was, I'm terrified of God. I'm worried that I might do something at some point that would mess up this love because on either side of the narrative, it doesn't really feel like I'm loved. It just feels like I need to do the right things, right? And then there's implications for how I live my life because this doesn't really matter what's going on here. It's really all about what's going on down there. But the implication for it is this. If you really believed that, if you really believed that that was the gospel story, then we would all be the people right now at the Rose Bowl holding up the picket sign that says, repent because you're going to hell. So I don't even buy it most of the time when people tell me that's the gospel story that they believe in. Because if you really believed that the mass, the, the mass, what word I'm trying to work here, 
Mass majority. Vast, vast. The mass majority and the vast majority of people were going to hell in a handbasket. I think you would respond to God in a very different way, and you would respond to humanity in a different way. So what I'm saying is, there was an ancient cosmology of heaven and hell with you're like, yeah, 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 the pillars, sure, right? And there's also a gospel story that we've been told where we're kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But really, the practices of our lives don't match that in any way, shape, or form. And then here's what happens. Because none of this matters, there's implications for the church. So the church becomes, there's a few entertainers up front, and there's a bunch of observers there, and we're just trying to make sure that the business keeps running so that we can all go up on the elevator one day. And then we move away from our ability to make or change or do anything different in the world because we're so concerned about what's going on over there. And the implications go on and on. The implications now for the rest of the gospel are, if you really believe in a gospel of entrance, read the rest of the Bible through that lens and tell me, does it actually make sense to you? Why is it that Jesus only talks about hell 12 times, and yet the other 99.8% of the time is talking about life and what's going on right here, and that there's real hells and real pain and real sorrow and real wounding and real systems of injustice that are oppressing people? Why does Jesus talk about all of that if he only cares about where the elevator's going later? That doesn't make any sense to your reading of the scriptures. It doesn't make any sense now when you talk about the cross. Now the cross just becomes a vehicle for getting us out of here. And when we talk about the cross, it now becomes a story of avoiding pain instead of engaging pain, right? Because we're getting out of here one day, now what the cross represents is God was really mad and needed to kill Jesus so that he would stop being mad. And then resurrection becomes pretty much obsolete. It was really just about that Jesus was raised from the dead, isn't that awesome that he got the elevator button up and now maybe we'll get the elevator button up one day too. You can see where my biases lie. Then there's a story of a gospel of participation. In the gospel of entrance, we've all had these moments where uh, we kind of have a perverse view of justice and judgment in the world. And it really comes from where we're at. The other day I get home and my youngest Bryce had flushed all of Caden's lollipops down the toilet because <laughs> he's a good two-year-old brother and that's what you do to your older brother. And Caden is, how do we say this, very anal, right? He's very particular, things go in certain order, he's very detail-oriented, and so when his brother flushes his stuff down the toilet, things erupt, right? So then what happens is I get home, and Caden, in a little bit of gospel of entrance, right, a little bit of, I want to deal with the injustice of the world, said, Dad, don't you think that you need to spank Bryce now? Because what he wants in his own life when he gets in trouble is, tons of grace, my friends. But now that somebody else is doing something wrong, what does he want? The spankings. And how many of us develop that view of God? Oh, I'm the fortunate one. I was chosen. Sovereignty, am I right? I'm good to go. All those other poor fools, something's going on with them. Versus, I think, a gospel of participation, which now, let's read this verse again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The word repent is actually turn. Pivot, open up, awaken to where you're currently at. Repent is this, you've been seeing the world like this. We call that sin, because what God has for you is this whole wide universe that's good. That's actually where the story starts in Genesis 1. Everything that God made was good, and it's all for 
us to enjoy. Because there's nothing that this good God loves more than his good creation enjoying this beautiful world that he made for them. And God knows that when you enjoy this good creation, you enjoy this good creator. So sin is the story of when our perspective gets smaller of who God is and what God is doing in the world. And when we participate in the palpable disruption of that wholeness and harmony and shalom that's taking place in the world. So this word for repent is start to open up your blinders a little bit more. And then one day you're gonna open it up and you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, I can like move my head now. And one day you're gonna be like, seriously, this has been around me the entire time? Now that's the kind of repentance that I wanna participate in. One that says, I just need to pivot a little bit more. It wasn't about me being terrified all the time. It was about me enjoying this kingdom that God is bringing my way. And then the kingdom of heaven is highly political language because you know that Jesus was born into another kingdom, right? And that kingdom was not his own. That was a kingdom of the empires of the world and Caesar ruled that kingdom and Caesar ruled that kingdom with a lot of fear and a lot of judgment. And if you messed with Caesar, then he would come forward and they would punish you. It kind of sounds like how we view God. But Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. My kingdom is much bigger than that. So that kingdom that is now entering into the world in the lowest places possible, people are getting wide awake to what's happening around them. And this kingdom that they're participating in is the kingdom of heaven. And as you know now, heaven is not some word for what's happening out there. Heaven is this reality of what's happening around us. How do we know that? Well, let's just look at the entire Bible real quickly, shall we? Great, Abraham. Abraham hears this voice from God come from heaven and God says, Abraham, Abraham, to stop him from killing Isaac. And it says that voice came from heaven. Where was heaven located? In the ancient Jewish understanding, heaven was right here. Heaven was not out there because in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, this is what God made. God didn't create cosmologies of pillars and things above those pillars. God made a world where, where God dwells and where human beings dwell is always connected, but sometimes we lose perspective of that reality. And so God is reminding people throughout the entire scriptures of where heaven and earth always are. When God shows up to the Israelites at the giving of the Ten Commandments, they all hear a voice from heaven. Where is this voice from heaven, you may ask? It's right here all around them. It's like Bose surround sound in your head, right? It's going on, not from up there, but currently what's taking place around you. Jesus's baptism, what takes place? The heavens, the curtain that we think is there is torn open and God speaks from where? All around you in their midst, declaring this new reality of this new kingdom about the son who's come. And God says, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And this is the reality now for every single human being. What is this kingdom about? It's God declaring for all of us, you are my children, whom I love, and with you I'm well pleased. And that, my friends, is not the story that Caesar is giving you. That, my friends, is not the story of what the religious conservative institution is giving you in Jesus' day, and I'll argue some other days as well. We can go on and on in these narratives. Or Peter sees this sheet come out of heaven. Where? Right around them. And what is heaven saying to Peter? It says this, eat all of the food that you see before you because you're telling a gospel of entrance, Peter, right? God is saying to Peter, one of the apostles of the church, you are creating barriers for other people to experience the kingdom of heaven around you. So stop with that talk. 
stop having the power trip of an entrance to heaven one where one place and start eating all of these other foods so that the people around you can be like oh this thing just got bigger isn't that interesting paul heard a voice from heaven to do what so that he could be taken up to heaven and see something behind the curtain no so that his eyes could be open to the fact that heaven was all around him the stories are endless the last story in the Bible is this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no more mourning. There was no more death. There was no more sin. The hells were all gone away. But which direction was heaven coming? Down to earth. And the story goes like this. Look, God now dwells with all of us forever. All of our eyes are fully aware and awake now that the kingdom has always been present, has always been near, has always been at hand. And so what you think about heaven and hell determines what you actually think about God. And I think what we think about God is incredibly important for our own lives. Every year when I go away, uh, before the new year, I go away for two weeks and I kind of pray like, God, where are you going to lead this community this year? And the word that I felt like for this community was this word encounter or experience. I think one of the crucial ways that we encounter or that we experience God is when we remove the curtains from our life. It's when we awaken and repent and pivot in just a little way that says, oh, the God thing was bigger. Not for an ideological shift in perspective in your mind, because now when the curtains can be removed, and now when you can open your eyes just a little bit more, now you more fully experience God. And the reason that you're asking all of these questions over the next four weeks is because the thing that we all desperately want more of is God in relationship with one another. All of the other questions are leading back to the original questions that were asked of Jesus. What's the greatest commandment? Love God, love others. And all of our questions about cosmology and what's going on in the world and all these fancy theological questions, well, what about happened to Satan and when they, they fall from heaven here and what's going on with this and what about this symbol and revelation is a deeper way of us saying, I'm kind of uncertain and unsure about God. And God is the thing that I want to be more connected with. And the great thing about repenting for this kingdom of heaven is near here at hand. It can be tasted, it can be touched is that now we all have the opportunity to be closer to God. Not that God is moving back and forth, it's the reality that we're just opening our eyes more to the reality of what's always been going on around us. So when Jesus teaches, Jesus gives these endless examples in the Gospels about reversing the arrows. Instead of it being this, heaven is up here and hell is down here, Jesus constantly reminds us of this, I'm bringing heaven to earth and there's constantly hells that are going on all around you. So now, how do you deal with that reality? So Jesus tells all kinds of stories, like the prodigal son, right? A story where there is a son who is going through the hells of earth, and Jesus is not shaming that son who sold off the inheritance, told his father to die, and then hung out with a bunch of pigs and prostitutes. This father, in this radical kingdom narrative, says, my son's home, and I cannot wait to throw a party for you. And then the older son, who's constantly trying to get everyone up to heaven, comes to the father and says, you stingy old man, I can't believe you're throwing a party for the youngest son. He's thrown everything away. He's like, you don't even give me a goat. And what does the father say to him? Everything I've had has always been yours. If you would open up your blinders a little bit more, you would have looked around and realized, I've never withheld a thing for you. 
at any time you can take and taste of this good kingdom too. There's a story about generosity where a bunch of workers come to get their daily wages. One gets money at 9 a.m. The other one gets their money at 6 p.m. And the story goes very quickly like this. The worker, the, the owner of the land gave everyone the same amount of wages. Why? Because in this kingdom, that's how it works. In a kingdom of participation, it doesn't matter when you open your eyes. The goal of God is that everyone just gets a little bit better taste of the kingdom that's around you. In a kingdom of entrance, we are very mad when other people get a little bit more than we do. Because, man, we've been so faithful the whole time. Or the story of Lazarus, right, who is now in hell. And the story of the rich man and the poor man. And the story there is this complete reversal of how we understand what hell is. The story there is challenging the notions of who gets to go up and who gets to go down because in the ancient world, the more money you had and the more religiously conservative you were, generally you thought that you were better off because clearly God is pleased with you. But in the stories of Jesus, who does Jesus generally get mad at? Not the sinners, not the heathens, not the demon possessed, not the people caught in adultery, the religious elite and the wealthy and powerful because they're generally the people who don't need God at all. And they don't care about the blinders that they have because they can survive the world in other ways. But God is saying constantly to these stories, the one very vibrant story that Jesus tells of hell is get rid of these notions of entrance and let's move towards a reality of heaven and hell is right here on earth. And how are you participating in my kingdom? How are you enjoying my kingdom so that you change the realities of both of those things, not only for your life, but for the life of other people around you? And as a father, I see that reality every day with my kids. For the parents out there, you know the moments where you, you want to beat your children. You get to the point of like, yeah, yeah, like I, I, I want to do some unhealthy things right now. And so that's where there's like this thing in us that's the gospel of entrance, where we really want justice. But when we move beyond that and we open up the blinders and I have moments like I did this morning where I'm up at 6 a.m. because Bryce came next to my bed, looked straight in my face and said, hi, dad. <laughs> and now I'm up and I get working on my sermon, just looking through some of my notes and Caden gets up and I make them both breakfast. And Caden comes to me like he does many mornings thinking that I am somehow a Four Seasons hospitality service <laughs> and says, I'd like a bagel with cream cheese. Please don't cut it today in a glass of orange juice. Yes, sir. Let me get that for you right away. <laughs> And I made it, and I'm sitting there watching both of them, and it was this realization that I have been invited to participate with the joy of their lives. I'm not a father who's forced to make a bagel with cream cheese and pour some orange juice. I'm a dad who gets to make a bagel with cream cheese and pour some orange juice. That's a very different way of seeing father, of seeing mother, of seeing God, of seeing a gospel. Is it about an angry God who's just trying to get us up because he's really pissed about all of our desires for bagels and cream cheese? Or is it a God who's like, I got some bagels and cream cheese for you, my children, enjoy. Different stories. And so I wanna wrap up with this. A few years ago, I was at summer camp with one of my guys. And one of my guys, uh, what they started doing at the beginning of the week is that they started slapping each other in the face when everyone was going to bed, as any healthy high school kids will do. <laughs> now there's one guy who wasn't really with all of the other guys, but he wanted to be just like them. And so what happened was, is that he would start to slap them before he went to bed because he wanted to participate in the joke. Well, one night what happened is that five of them at the same time came and slapped him in the face when he was asleep. And the next morning, the kid didn't talk. 
And I knew immediately he just got broken. But he comes from a world and a culture where he's never been taught to deal with his emotions. He grew up in foster care. He grew up in abusive homes. He grew up where moms and dads didn't make bagels and cream cheese and didn't offer orange juice and were constantly telling him that he's not good enough. And now all of a sudden, he's supposed to be at a safe place like camp. And he just gets smacked in the face by his friends. And the only words he can say to me is, call my mom, I want to go home. And he's 6'6 six, six and 210 pounds. And at this moment, he's four years old. And for the next three hours, I don't get to go participate in the muddy games with all of my other guys because I know that in this moment, this young man is dealing with the very real hells of the world that he lives in. And so we just sit there. And I constantly am just reminding him that he's loved and that he's cared for. I'm telling a kingdom of participation and that heaven has come to earth and that no one's ever told him before, I know somebody did something that's wrong to you, but what if the real gift is sticking it out and participating somehow in this week because you might hear more about how you're loved and cared for. And then some really profound things began to happen. We started saying, did they hurt your feelings? And never before in his life has he ever been able to tell someone that his feelings were hurt. Because when you're a man in his world, you don't have feelings that get hurt because you have to be hard. And then all of a sudden he opens up and he says, my feelings were hurt. And then we get to the point of, do you think you could look at the guys who slapped you and tell them that? And for three hours, this conversation goes on where we're constantly reminding him that he's loved and that he's cared for and that there's a better way. And even though he's dealt with hells in his life, like abusive families and foster care systems and all of the trust that he's had at this place has now been broken, what if there was still a way forward for him in the midst of all of that pain? And then two hours later, the toughest guys in the world are all staring at each other, giving each other hugs and saying, you hurt my feelings. And they received that and offered that and spent a great week together. The reality for me is that there is hells around us all the time. And do I have bigger eyes to see how the kingdom can penetrate those realities? It could have been a moment of, you know what, dude, toughen it up. You got slapped in the face, but you were slapping everybody else in the face too. So let's get out to the muddy games. You want to call your mom, whatever. And I had other people telling me to give him that advice. I think the reality is that the more we participate in this kind of kingdom, the more it begins to change how we encounter God and how we encounter other people. So that we begin to see and have ears, right? And to have a perspective of the reality that's going on in this world of, I need to enter into this relationship with more compassion and more kindness and a counter narrative to the kingdoms that are going on around me, which are all about power and who gets the upper hand. But that's not this narrative of Jesus. Because in this narrative of Jesus, in a kingdom where we participate, we don't go to the cross to avoid pain. We go to the cross to deal with the pain and to go through the pain because you never get to Sunday unless you go through a Friday. And this young man never had to do that before. But in this moment, he has to deal with the cross and the reality and wounding of this day so that he could experience a resurrection another day. And then you start to learn this and do this and open yourself up to the realities of heaven and to the realities of hell that are going on all around us. And then this repentance thing, this participation thing, just keeps circling and cycling back. It's this reality of it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger until we looked around all around us and as far as the eye could see, 
It was good, and it was filled with the kingdom of heaven and not all of the other hells around us because I chose to participate in the realities of the hells that were taking place. And so for some of us in this room, the starting point is simply this, repent. Say to yourself today, what does this say about God? It says that the story of God that I often believe and the way that I experience God is sometimes this small. And oftentimes I don't trust God and I'm scared of God. I'm worried about literal hells and other things going on. And sometimes we need to repent to open up that reality so that we can actually deal with the real hells that are taking place. Because as a pastor for the last 10 years, one of the greatest gifts that you have is access into people's lives. It's showing up at the perfect church family's house and there's a chair sticking in the wall and children crying everywhere because of an abusive situation. It's sitting there with the family crying because of rape. It's the stories of affairs. It's you've never heard of that much money and someone's being sued for it. And on and on the stories go. And the reality is those hells are around us all of the time. And we desperately need other people to come in who are participating in this kingdom of heaven to help relieve us from some of that very real oppression, systemic pains, evils, addictions that are going on in our world. What you think about God makes all the difference. Your view of heaven and hell shapes the way that you're living. So let's ask these questions together as we finish today. What does your view of heaven and hell say about God? How does your view of heaven and hell affect your relationship with God and others? Thanks for listening to the New Abbey podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.